We have been made to praise. No one ever in our life had to teach us how to praise. Our parents, our friends, our neighbors, no one ever taught you how to praise. It's in our DNA to praise. We were created to praise. And we exercise this God-given gift every day of our life. We praise our favorite sports teams. We praise our favorite singers or bands. Honestly, if you want to see worship, praise and worship, go to a sporting event. Or go to a concert. There you see praise and worship. We praise our children. We praise our spouses. We praise our co-workers. We even praise ourselves. We praise what we want to honor and hold up high for everyone to see. In fact, the The primary motive often in praise is you want everyone to know what you value most. What you think is worthy of praise, you praise. That's why you scream at the TV when the the touchdown is going to happen. Or you go to that country music concert and you praise that country music singer or whoever it is. We were made to praise. It's in us. And so we don't find it very strange when God in his word says that we're to praise him. We don't find it surprising when we see all throughout the Bible, exhortation after exhortation, example after example of people praising God, lifting him up. Honoring Him with our voices. So that everyone will know that we value Him more than everything else. A few weeks ago, we started a study through Ephesians. And I shocked and awed you all with how long we will be studying this letter. But trust the Lord, you will endure He will give you the strength. But this morning, we are continuing our study through Ephesians. Beginning with Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 and through verse 6. This text is a part of a larger section. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, I'm just going to point out a few things to you before I read the text. Just get some context here a bit. We know that Paul is writing a letter here to a church in Ephesus. Now, we're not quite sure if this is the church that he pastored, that he helped plant and start and get off the ground, that he spent more than three years of his life shepherding. But we do know that it's a congregation near and around Ephesus. This letter is a general letter. It was meant to be circular. What that means is it was meant to be passed around to as many congregations as could gobble it up. And Paul is writing to Christians there in this congregation or or other congregations. And as we saw a few weeks ago, Paul laid out in that introduction what he's going to unfold in the letter itself. 
Ephesians is easily divided into two parts, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. In chapters 1 through 3, we could loosely say that Paul lays down the theological basis of God's gracious call of sinners to salvation. And then, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul builds upon that theological foundation with application and exhorts the church to walk in light of God's gracious call in their life. This is what God has done. Now this is what you do. God has saved you. Act like it. You're a saint. Live like it. And Paul begins his letter with these a burst of acclamation. As Paul meditated on the theological points that he's about to make, he couldn't just jump into the theology. He wanted to begin with acknowledging where all of it came from. Paul didn't want to just get technical about, the, about salvation. Paul wanted to begin to make sure that everyone knew that salvation was the work of God and God alone. And here in verses 3 through 14, Paul crafts one elegantly long sentence. So if you're a, a grammar nut this morning, in the original language, verses 3 through 14 was one long sentence. 202 words. The second longest, or the, it's the second longest, the longest one is, is in Colossians chapter 1. So... You wish you had this, right? Back when you were in school, you could have taken it to your teacher and said, hey, look, in the Bible, they have really long sentences too. It's okay. Um, run on sentences. No, this is one long sentence. And in it, what Paul does is he takes God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and he, he explodes with, a, with praise and acclamation. He begins in verse 3 through 6. By saying, God the Father is worthy of praise. Then in verses 7 through 12, he, he says, God the Son is worthy of praise. And then he begins to talk about what the Son has done to redeem. And then in verses 13 through 14, Paul says, the Holy Spirit is worthy of praise. For he seals you for eternity. The entire praise, you can see, begins with blessing and ends with blessing. If you look with me just in verse 14, you'll get my point pretty clear. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. This is one long song of praise. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to see really four reasons why we praise God. First, we praise God because he chose us. And then we'll see that the God, we're to praise God because he redeemed us. Then we'll see that we're to praise God because he gave us an inheritance. And then in verses 13 through 14, we're going to praise God because he keeps us. He secures us. He seals us for eternity. Paul gives us four reasons, and we're going to consider the first reason this morning. Why we should praise God. We should praise God because he chose us in Christ. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to 
to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we've been redeemed. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be the, to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What is the point of this passage? It is this. Every Christian should continually praise God. Every Christian should continually, daily, moment by moment, praise God for choosing you in Christ. God's election of sinners is the reason we praise. We praise God because he chose us in Christ. And so the purpose of our sermon this morning, our time together, is to warm our souls to the doctrinal truth of divine election. Now, I know if you've been in church a while, this is a dirty word to many people. Many people are afraid of this word. Southern Baptists often are afraid of this word. Historically not, but recently so. So Paul seems to take this doctrine of election as the primary motive for his worship life. It's what got him up in the morning to sing praises to God. It wasn't something that Paul retreated from, but entreated God in praise for. And this morning, I want us to look at really three aspects to our praise of God's glorious grace Uh, This passage begins with the aim of our praise or the object of our praise, namely God the Father. Then Paul goes into the general basis of our praise in the second half of verse 3. Then in verses 4 through 6, Paul outlines the reason for our praise and we'll meditate a bit on that portion. First, you'll see in verses, verse one, or verse three, excuse me, uh, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's point is that the object of our praise is first and foremost God the Father. God the Father is the object of our praise in this particular portion. We'll see, as I mentioned, that our shift will Our aim will change to the Son and then to the Spirit. But here Paul seeks to highlight why we must praise the Father. What has the Father done? Well, before he gets to what he's done, he tells us that he is to be praised. I keep using that word because as you read in your Bible, you see in verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That language is kind of archaic. It's old. 
Blessed be. We don't, we don't often walk around. Blessed be you, sir. Um, Paul is using language from the Old Testament, particularly from the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 103, David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in within me. Bless his holy name. Right? We know that. We sing that song. We, we know that. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, what's David doing? He's saying, praise the Lord, O my soul. It is a, it's an imperative. He is saying, praise the Lord. The Lord is worthy of praise. Paul, uh, David would go on later in Psalm 103 and give the reason why he is to be blessed. And that's what Paul is doing here. Uh, the word itself there in the original language is eulegeo, eulogy. He's giving a eulogy to God. He's giving a list of all the reasons why God should be honored and praised. That's what he's doing here. And so don't fumble around with the word blessed and get confused. See it as Paul is, is inviting us, encouraging us to praise God for his glorious work of redemption. This is why God is the object of our worship, particularly the Father. Notice what he says in verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why is God the object of our praise? Well, because he's the source of all of our blessing. The very reason Paul gives for why God is worthy is because of what God has done. God is worthy of our praise. This is very different than worship. We don't want to confuse the two. We worship God for who he is. We praise him for what he's done. It's a distinction made in scripture. But God is the object of our worship. He is what we aim at. Like a, like a bullseye, if you will. We aim to praise him. We aim to, to acknowledge him as the source of all our spiritual blessing. As James would write in James Chapter 1 and verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, whom does not change like the shifting shadows. Or later in this letter, Paul will say, in whom we have boldness, so that I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. God the Father is the source of all blessing. Therefore, he is the one who is to be praised. A negative illustration of this would be in Acts chapter 12. You'll remember, O King Herod, he was a, a self-righteous man, a wicked man. And we're told there in Acts chapter 12 by Luke that wicked King Herod had gathered the Jewish people together one day. He was the leader of their people and he was on a political campaign, he was on the campaign trail, uh, in order to gain support for his re-election uh, to the role there, the puppet of the Roman government. And they began to shout, praise, praise, the voice of God and not of man. They began to praise Herod, and we're told 
that his heart was warmed by these praises. He began to feel all warm inside, and, and well, that warmth inside began to change. As Luke tells us, that the wrath of God was poured out on wicked King Herod, and he died instantly that day. And the reason? Because he did not give praise to God, but to himself. All praise is to God above. He alone is, the, is worthy of our praise. He alone is the aim of our praise. And as we see here in verse 3, he is the basis of our, the basis of our praise is because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Look with me again in verse 3 in, in what Paul writes. Who, the, the Father, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, everything that's going to follow is summarized in verse 3. How has he blessed us in Christ? Well, we first note that it's a complete blessing. He has blessed us in Christ. Look with it. Words matter. Look at your Bible. It doesn't say that he's going to bless you in Christ. He doesn't say he might bless you in Christ. What he says is he has blessed you in Christ. In other words, the blessing we receive in salvation is the fullest, completest blessing you'll ever receive. So we ain't looking for no second blessings here today. If you have received Christ, you have received the greatest blessing you will ever receive in your life. No amount of money, no amount of riches in this world will ever compare to the blessing you have received in Christ. And what we see is that it is a, not only a complete, but a completed blessing, right? It's complete. It's finished. It's done. It's already finished. There's nothing else to be at. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of silly. I don't feel very adopted by God today. Well, of course, Paul isn't saying that all of that is complete. It's an already but not yet tension in the scripture. It's already true, but it's not yet true. In other words, it hasn't happened yet, right? It won't come to completion until Christ comes again and gathers his people in glory. Notice here also what Paul says, that the basis of our praise of God is because God has blessed us with a new residence. He has blessed us, notice, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have been blessed with the treasuries of heaven, the glories of heaven. More than that, we know that this has come to us through the mediatory work of the Holy Spirit. We'll think more about that in the weeks ahead. We also see in this text that God has blessed us with every blessing imaginable. Notice what he says. Every, every, every spiritual blessing. When you get Jesus, you get everything. You get all of heaven. All of it. Without limit. Now, what does Paul have in mind? What are these blessings? Well, as I said, they're what is going to follow. Our election. Our redemption. Our inheritance. Our eternal souls being secured by the Spirit. This is what Paul has in mind here. But I want you also to see here something very important to this to this sentence and to this, to this discussion here. Notice with me again in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. In Christ. 
Christ alone is the source of all our spiritual blessing. You detach from Christ, you ain't got no more spiritual blessing. We are blessed because we are identified with Jesus. So what we are getting is Christ's blessing, not our blessing. We are sharing what God the Father is blessing his own son with. And Jesus is by our union with him. Sharing. This in Christ here points to the exclusivity of Christ and our eternal union with him. This is our firm foundation. That's why we can sing with confidence. Because God is the one that we sang at the beginning. From whom all blessings flow. All flow from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When you build a building, one of the very first things that they do is lay a foundation. Footings go in the ground. But before they even pour the concrete footings... They go down really deep. They get all the, the soft clay and get it out of there because it's junk. And they go down deep and hit bedrock. Maybe a foot or two, depending on how high. Of course, we all know the, the, the analogy. Uh, skyscrapers, however high a skyscraper is, that's how deep they have to go. We saw this tragically in the 9-11 when the Twin Towers came down and those ginormous holes were unearthed. Because the foundations ran deep. What Paul is saying here in this text is that our foundation of our redemption is in Christ. The foundation of every whisper of our praise is in this firm basis, this firm footing in Christ. This is why we can say that, that we will never lose our salvation, for it's not founded upon us. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Therefore, he alone is worthy of praise. If God is the source of everything you've got and every spiritual benefit you've received, then he's the only one worthy of praise. No one else is. Not a preacher, not an evangelist, not anyone. God alone. Well, this leads us then to this final point, which we'll spend most of our time with. That begins in verse 4. Paul, in verse 4 through 6, begins to develop the point of the passage by arguing six reasons why God, is, God the Father is worthy of praise. The overarching reason is that God chose us. Look with me at verse 4. Look what he says. Even as he chose us in him. He chose us. God's election of sinners is the primary reason for our praise. Why we praise God. Why did we gather this morning to sing praises to him? Because in eternity past, God chose sinners for salvation. In other words, you didn't stumble in here this morning. God ordained it. You didn't stumble down some aisle one year in some distant past. You didn't stumble into some prayer. You didn't just find and feel your way to God. The Bible makes clear that from eternity past, He called sinners to salvation. Elected us. Redeemed us. 
Well, who did he choose? Who did he choose? Well, let's, let's look at six aspects here. Six reasons, you could say. Number one, we see that God chose us in Christ. Who did God choose? Those in Christ. I want you to look here how often he emphasizes our union with Christ. Verse 3. He has blessed us in Christ. Verse 4. He has chosen us in Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, with which he has blessed us, verse 6, in the beloved, which is Christ. Verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose, to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven. Verse 11. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And believed in Christ. We're sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. Who does God elect? Those in Christ. Our union with Christ is the, is the reason why God has chosen us. God has chosen those who are in Jesus Christ. As we'll see in a moment, this is a very important point to distinguish, to distinguish against an error that often creeps into the church when we begin to talk about election, and that's God's foreknowledge. We must have the firm foundation that God has chosen us. Why is God God worthy of praise? Because he has chosen us in Christ. There's no other way for God to choose you except in Christ. Well, number two, we see that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Look again at verse four. He chose us in Christ when? When we were amazingly doing something awesome? No, no. Before the foundation of the world. What what does Paul mean there? He means before God ever created one molecule, before God ever formed one planet, before anything was formed, before the foundation of the world, before he even spoke one word into existence, God had an eternal purpose to save sinners. From eternity past, you've been in the mind of God. Eternity past. Trillions of years ago. Trillions upon trillions upon trillions. Upon trillions. That's how far back your salvation goes. It didn't begin 2,000 years ago. It didn't begin however many years ago it was when God created. Our election is eternally secured in the footing of God's eternal purposes. They're grounded in God. Our election is hardwired to God. And God alone. That's how secure it is. It was before anything was done. Before we did anything good and impressed God with our obedience. It was planned before the world began. God knew this world would need a Redeemer before He even laid one Yet he did it. 
And God chose to save sinners for his glory. Now, I want you to see number three here, a third reason why we're to praise God for our election in Christ. Look what he says again in verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That word that there is a purpose statement. What is the purpose of our redemption? That we might, or the purpose of our election, that we might be holy and blameless. Why did God choose you? What was the purpose? So that you would be holy and blameless. The word holy there speaks of moral purity. Blameless speaks of shame. The removal of shame and guilt that our sin rightly bears upon us. I want you to settle in here for a minute because this right here can get you kind of excited. Because if you understand Ephesians 2, that in yourself you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, if you understand that's you this morning before Jesus came into your life, if you understand that you are following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, if you understand that's you, and me, and that we once lived in the passions of our flesh, kind of just doing whatever we wanted to do and rebelling against God. And we are vile and wicked in our flesh. Notice what he says in verse 3, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were vile, wicked, evil, evil people. We are evil. It's Paul's point. God chose you in Christ, that he might make you holy and blameless, morally pure. Now, I know if you know your own heart this morning, it's not morally pure. But it will be if you're in Jesus. One day it will be. This is a promise this morning. It's the same promise we heard in Romans 8 when our sister read that earlier. The promise that we will, that those whom he has predestined, he will glorify, right? That's that great chain, how it ends. We will be glorified. We will be holy. But more than that, just to kind of put an extra layer of icing on the cake, right? We're going to be blameless. Right now we're blameworthy. We are blameworthy for our sin. You know, there, there's no, mommy made me do it. You don't understand what kind of dad I had or what kind of mom I had or, or I didn't have or what kind of friends I ran with. You don't understand my situation in life. You don't understand where I lived. You don't understand the world I lived in. There is no excuse before God. We will all be blameworthy for our sin. But in Christ, we will one day stand before his throne and be blameless. Before the throne of God above. Right? I stand. So we sang just a moment ago. And arise my soul arise. We're not afraid. We know we're sinners. But we know we are accepted to the throne room of God's grace. By his grace. And we are made holy and blameless through our union with Christ. Be holy and blameless. That's you this morning. If you're struggling in your sanctification this morning, if you're struggling, if you're fighting against sin, if you're wrestling, you're just like, I'm tired. I'm sick of this. Believe in Jesus and you will be holy 
and you will be blameless. We see the fourth reason to praise God comes to us in verse 5. God chose us for adoption. Now you'll see in your Bible this cumbersome deal with the, with the where does in love go with? Does it go with verse 4 or does it go with verse 5? I think it's best to take it with verse 5 as you see the ESV, though it doesn't matter. The point still remains the same. He's talking about election in verse 4. And he's talking about election in verse 5. And in both cases, he's done it in love. God's election is a measure of his love, right? It's an extension of his love. It displays his love for sinners. Why does Paul say that it's in love? Because it's undeserved. We don't deserve to be chosen. There's nothing choice about us, right? We are chosen because God loves. That's why. And because God gets his way every time. In love, he chose us for adoption. Notice what Paul says in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption. The word predestined is that he predetermined. And this is where people get all weirded out. (gasps) My free will. Thankful for brothers who are way smarter than me that came before us. Men like Augustus, Hippo, Calvin of Geneva. Brothers who meditated deep and wide on these texts and thought through them well. Even as Martin Luther reminds us that our wills are not as free as we want to believe they are. But they are bound to sin and Satan. But God, for his own glory, eternally chose sinners for adoption. He did it for his own glory and for his own reasons. And don't ever listen to somebody that tries to get around that and say, well, let me tell you why God has chosen you and not you. That's scary stuff there. The only reason is God did what he did. Maybe in eternity you'll learn why God did what he did. But the point of the matter is, is that God's will has prevailed. And will prevail upon the wicked hearts of men. He has predetermined those that are in Christ. Look at verse 5. For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. What's a child get in your house? Children in my house, they get food. You feed them. You protect them. You give them clothes. You know. You keep them safe, make sure they don't run away. Try to keep them in this money, lock the doors, don't get out of here. Take them to the doctor, make sure they get their checkups. You care about them, care about their futures. You do whatever it takes, right? Even a rebellious child, you, you do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. And this language that Paul uses is not accidental. Paul says that those whom he has elected to salvation, he has invited to be at his table. Once a rebel, now invited to sit at God's table. Like, 
We're not like the prodigal son. Before Jesus, we weren't even sons. We weren't even welcome. It was a closed house. Get off my lawn. Get out of here. You don't want nothing to do with me. You're not welcome in my home. But through Christ, we have been invited into his home. And we have not been relegated to, to, to clean up messes. He says, no, no, no. Let, we, I created angels for that stuff. Come on in here. I want you to sit at my table. And you get every benefit. I mean, just meditate today. Spend your afternoon on this cold winter day. Think about what it means that today you are God's child. And all the benefits that there come in, right? You're his. This is why the promises of what, what, should, what more can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul says to us in Romans 8, as we heard earlier, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery. You're not a slave to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. You received a new dad. So, brothers and sisters, think for just a minute. If you've lived this, this life without a father, and the pain that comes with that, and, and, and the sorrow that that comes with. Know that in Christ, you get a new father who is perfect, who will never let you down, who will never abandon you, who, who will provide for you everything you need. And he will make sure you get to glory. He will make sure he is guaranteed it. You're his. As Paul reminds us in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, listen, because you are sons, not because you're amazing, not because you did something, not because you prayed a prayer, but because you're his son, he has sent his spirit. The spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This world will offer you so many things. But no one can offer you that. Only Jesus. The fifth reason we see in the text God chose us according to his will. Now, I want to drill in here a little bit on this question of foreknowledge. Look with me again in verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according by the basis of our good works, our choiceness, our future obedience, our really sweet bank account. Because, you know, he needs money for to build his church. No, Paul says it's according to the purpose of his will. It's the purpose of his will. This is that great doctrine of election that we began with. One of the richest illustrations of all of the Bible of God's divine election is Abraham. 
of all the people that roamed the face of the earth during the days of Abraham, God set his love on one man and says, I'm going to save you. It preceded him with Noah. But God said, I chose you. Now, if you know anything about Abram, who then became Abraham, Abram, there was nothing choice about him. He had some serious issues. He was a liar and a cheat. He was just like his great granddaddy Noah, wicked. Nothing about him. No righteousness in him. Nothing where God said, you know what? It looks like a good project. I think I could work on him a little bit. Clean him up. He's got some potential. None of that. There was nothing worthy. Nothing that warranted this choice. But it was according to his own purpose of election that God chose one man to, to bless the world. As Moses writes in Deuteronomy Chapter 7, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Well, that's not fair. God didn't have to choose to save a single soul. He didn't. See, we've got things turned upside down. We, we think we're entitled to salvation. We think we're entitled to Christ's death. No, no one has ever been entitled to salvation. God in his love saves sinners. This is what we affirmed earlier when we read our statement of faith. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It's consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. I love that statement. It comprehends all the means in connection. In other words, don't try to like out-engineer this. It's okay. There's a mystery in it. Leave it at that. It's glorious and beautiful. It's a display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. Now, I want to give you a few reasons why we believe as a congregation that election was not by God's foreknowledge. Now, I use that word foreknowledge. Some have taken texts of Scripture, like the one we heard our sister read in Romans 8, that according to his foreknowledge, he elected sinners to salvation. Some have twisted and perverted the doctrine of election in this way. They have said, you know, in eternity past, God looked down through the corridors of time. And he saw sinners who decided to follow him, who chose to follow Jesus, raised their hand and said, I, I choose Jesus. And those are the ones that God has chosen. Well, Paul here, I think, in this text completely debunks that false theology. For several reasons. We reject the basis of this. For this reason. Number one. God's choice was before anything was done. Paul makes that pretty clear doesn't he? Before the foundation of the world. He did this. Number two we see here in the text. That we were saved to be holy. Not because we were holy. 
doesn't make much sense to, to look down through the court of time and say, yeah, I want that holy one down there, and then I'm going to make him holy. No, no, he says, you were not holy, but now you are holy. You will be holy. Thirdly, only through union with Christ does he choose us. It is not based on us. It's in union with Christ. His choice of you is because you are identified with Jesus. That's the basis of it. Fourthly, we see in the text that it was according to his will, not our will. Now, why does Paul say that it's according to the purpose of his will? To make clear that it wasn't according to the purpose of your will. Nothing about you. Nothing about your will made this whole thing happen. And fifthly, and I think this is the the supreme reason, the number one reason, comes to us in verse 6. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. If you think about the logic, you follow the logic through. If election is based on some inherent merit in us, how could it be to the praise of God's glorious grace? If it was by our merit, God does not get the glory And nor was it by grace, but by works. God's eternal purposes in Christ was to choose sinners for salvation, for his glory. This is the sixth and final reason. God chose us, verse 6, with the purpose that he would get the credit. God chose us to the praise of his glorious grace. Your salvation was not really about saving you. That was just a benefit. His election of you to save you was so that he would be praised for all of eternity. God saved sinners with the primary aim of his glory. He saves so that the nations would praise him, that he would become famous That he would get all the credits. God saves that his fame would spread throughout the cosmos. And then it becomes our aim as well. That we might praise. Paul bookends this section with praise, doesn't he? Praise God. Verse 6, praise God. Praise God, praise God. For God's election of you as a sinner is the reason for your praise. Brothers and sisters, the doctrine of election does one very clear thing. It humbles you at the cross. It reminds you that you did not start this. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Your salvation wasn't by chance or by accident. And if you're not a Christian this morning, Jesus Christ makes the appeal to you this morning. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. By repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ, you too will be saved. You too will be redeemed. Every Christian should continually praise God for their election. Every day we should thank God for we know that God's love on us is not something that we merit. But was according to his eternal purpose. Isaac Watts in his hymn, Glory to God, the Father's Name, poetically captures these verses in this way. 
Glory to God the Father's name, who from our sinful race chose out his favorite to proclaim the honors of his grace. God chose for his glory and his glory alone to the praise of his glorious grace in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray this morning that we would be humbled under your cross, that we would meditate on all that we have received in Christ, not due to our own merit, our own worth, but according to your own purposes. Father, you saved us. Why? We don't understand. But we give praise and glory to you for for our redemption, for our salvation, for our inheritance, for your spirit that now dwells in us. And we pray that we might live in light of this by growing in holiness. For your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen.